Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 7 of the podcast, the topic is the work of the future. Our guest is Elizabeth Reynolds, Executive Director, MIT Task Force on the Work of the Future. In this conversation, we talk about why the work of the future is particularly relevant now. Why did MIT take this initiative and what did the task force learn? Which specific institutional innovations are necessary? What will be the adoption curve for Industry 4.0 technologies? I ask her what the next decade will look like. Finally, we discuss how to stay up to date. Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the manufacturing app platform, and associated with MFG Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Liz, it's great to have you here. Trond, I love being here. Thank you. <laughs> Liz, you, have, you are many things. You are currently an executive director at uh, the, working with the, on the work of the future at MIT, but you've been uh, doing so many exciting things in manufacturing uh, throughout your career. And I, I wanted to sort of bring you back to kind of Montreal and your PhD at MIT, then in, you know, both in economics and in other fields. How is it that you got to to work so much with manufacturing throughout your career and, and then kind of pinnacle at MIT just to, to lead the project on the work of the future, which of course goes beyond manufacturing, but as we'll get back to the core of, of a lot of our economy is of course manufacturing. How did you start this journey? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I like to say I started in investment banking and I've been downwardly mobile ever since. So <laughs> that was my first job out of... Uh, out of the university. And then um, essentially I was really interested in understanding, I think at that time, kind of global, you know, global dynamics, globalization and what was happening in the world uh, sort of in the um, late eighties and nineties, but combining that with issues related to social policy, social justice. And so in this interesting way with sort of uh, economics and, um, sort of social-minded kind of uh, economic development in mind, I gravitated toward manufacturing because manufacturing actually historically has been um, a very solid uh, industry for providing middle-wage, middle-skill jobs. It's been something that uh, has been kind of at the heartland of America or in places, you know, it's, it's you can find it everywhere. It doesn't have to be necessarily in the... Uh, glittering cities with the, um, you know, uh, all the most highly educated. And it also has a tremendous amount of capacity for innovation. And I think innovation as a driver of economic development, you know, makes it really, really important. So I sort of, in some ways, marched toward, I was working toward um, issues of economic development. Before I moved to MIT, I was working with Professor Michael Porter of the Harvard Business School with a nonprofit he started called the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City, which was about building urban economies, sort of inner city in economies where we often have low income uh, workers, et cetera, where we would find our manufacturing base. And so I was working in those areas and then moved it, you know, progressively toward regional economic development. And, uh, and then at MIT did my PhD 
on biomanufacturing. Uh, biomanufacturing, one of the more complicated forms of manufacturing and one area that the U.S. really is a, a leading comp competitor. I don't want to harp on this, but, you know, clearly being a, a woman in manufacturing in any role, whether it's researching manufacturing on the shop floor or managing or leading manufacturing firms. Tell me a little bit about that aspect before we get into kind of the meat of the of the work that MIT is currently sure. doing. It's an interesting dynamic and it's obviously now receiving uh, a lot of a lot of attention. Um, and yet we see more and more springing up clearly talent uh, that that is now interested in manufacturing uh, of, of diverse origin it be gender or, or other types of diversity how, how do you see that dimension you know given all of your kind of years of experience in this topic right. is it kind of now coming into a, a different picture or would you say it's still for some time you know it's going to be a, a very uneven you know it's always been a traditionally a male uh, dominated Area, but having said that, I think that more um, more women. Obviously, we're trying to get more women into um, STEM-related work. More women into uh, hands-on sort of labor labor-intensive work. I think, uh, but women have historically been in in healthcare and retail and areas. You know, we have a gendered, highly gendered area of uh, division of of labor in that way. I, I certainly, the first time I went to a factory and had open toed um, shoes was, you know, a lesson learned, like that's not what we do. And so you learn that pretty quickly. My experience has been that particularly in small and medium sized firms that we see um, a lot of women taking over from their fathers right now, a lot of women kind of successor CEOs to companies that were started a generation ago. And I think the whole um, maker movement more broadly is a sort of a step towards saying, you know, we need to be working with our hands. It's not just about, um, uh, and we need, and it's also minds, of course, you know, manufacturing now is so much around technology and digitalization. And so it's, I think it's moving into a space in which it's, it's becoming more um, welcoming, more open to women. And, um, and I think that the next generation is going to be even more, more open to it. You, you mentioned the maker movement. Can you define that a little bit for us? I mean, for, for people in manufacturing, obviously, this is a trend and it's not a mystery to, to anyone. But w how did this start and w what exactly does it entail to be a maker in this sense? Well, I think technically the maker movement might have roots back to MIT and to some of the early fab lab uh, developments, which is the idea of building these kind of portable, small uh, fabricating labs that people could have easy access to and find uh, tools and make make things by themselves that didn't require large scale and large um, you know equipment in the end I think that they have been they've really served two purposes on one on one hand there's you know there's a there's a goal to be kind of very utility driven how to help how to help entrepreneurs uh, access that kind of um, capability but I think the real long-term value of the, of the whole maker movement is really around education. Hmm. It's been uh, an effort, and I think we've seen it in community after community. Let's put a, let's put a fab lab, let's have a, um, you know, a maker space that kids can access yeah. at school, that libraries are holding, that, um, that we can start to rebuild uh, a sense of capabilities for working with our hands and building things. Because I think... As we know in the U.S., you know, 
vocational schools have been had been defunded for a while. Um, shop had been, you know, maybe uh, ended. And so we've really had to rebuild that interest and that capability in the country. I wanted to, to bring it even more into MIT because I know that, you know, the motto obviously is, uh, you know, mind and hand yeah. kind of going, uh, working together, uh, but also to, to bring it into this project, you know, on the work of the future. First of all, mind and hand, how does that tie into work of the future? And then maybe uh, line up a little bit why MIT took this initiative, because ma many organizations now are working on work of the future. It's sort of become a very hot topic. Why in particular did MIT feel like this was the time? Well, this was an initiative launched by President Reif in the spring of 2018. And if you go back to that time of just a few years ago, I think there, the zeitgeist was the robots are coming they're going to take our jobs. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, it's just preordained. And I remember the Super Bowl commercials of 2019. Almost every one of those commercials had a robot in it. You know, there was somehow the robot was going to come take your beer or do whatever it was going to do during those commercials. So at the time, I think that there was this real fear fed in part also by the media that, um, that technology was on this um, march and artificial intelligence and robotics were were um, you know really going to dramatically uh, turn things around, and MIT is you know one of the leading uh, institutions for technology development. Obviously, uh, there was sort of this question to President Reif: Okay, you you guys are inventing the robots. What are you doing about the implication of those robots? And I think he took that seriously. And I think that the fact is that MIT. Uh, both is involved in the development, you know, on the technology side, but also has a lot of people on the social science side, particularly in economics, thinking about what are the implications of technology for work. And so this task force was launched. It is one of the few times MIT has put together a, um, an effort that's across all five schools, 20 plus faculty representing every discipline from the computer scientist to the anthropologist, uh, trying to look from a sort of a uh, 360 lens on what does it, what's happening in terms of technology and the changing nature of work. How do we shape that technology? Because as, at MIT sort of feels like, yes, we do shape that. We know that that has a lot of factors uh, that come into play and how can you do that to shape and support workers? And then finally, what do our institutions, how do our institutions need to change so that the technology is really benefiting everyone and leading towards shared prosperity? And without claiming that you've finished a project, I know you've issued a lot of uh, earlier reports. What are you starting to, what are you finding in this project? Well, we've, we have done a tremendous amount of research and I think in many ways laid out what we think the problem is. Um, and we've done that final report that came out uh, just a few months ago and then 20 plus briefs on each aspect of this. Um, but what we've, we've, we sort of came across three main high level uh, findings that I think are are um, are relevant. The first is to say that yes, technology absolutely eliminates work, but we can't forget that it also creates work. And so our challenge going forward will not be the end of work. A lot of people were thinking, you know, we're going to need a universal basic income. We're just not going to have enough jobs. In fact, what we know is over time, technology has been, you know, automating jobs and introducing, uh, you know, new types of work over decades. And in that period of time, we've actually had an increase in our labor market participation rates and in our um, in the uh, employment to population ratios. And so that's not the challenge. The challenge, I think, will be the quality of that work. And and that's what we need to focus on. And of course, I say this, you know, uh, we did our research pre-COVID, but what we felt is that COVID just 
essentially made this work more important, not less important. And and what we've seen is, of course, COVID has exposed um, and exacerbated some of the shown the uh, problems with our labor markets and with our um, and with the ways in which technology, I think, has been um, uh, in, in employed or deployed. The second point we would make is that this is uh, that even with a lot of productivity gains over the last several decades, those gains have not been shared broadly. If you're an average worker, uh, the average you know compensation of all workers, including four-year degree holders, has sort of tracked productivity growth pretty well. But if we looked at the median worker, which is about sixty percent of American workers who have less than a four-year degree we've had largely stagnant wages and we've had this great divergence since the 1970s. And it's, you know, technology has played a role in that. No question. Globalization has played a role in that. But the fact is that other countries have faced those pressures and they have had better outcomes for workers. So it really points to policies and institutions and choices people have made about, um, you know, about how we uh, support work and how we support workers through a a transition like we're going through now. Um, Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, uh, you know, very specifically that uh, you said robotics was a, a big kind of maybe the impetus for the report. But there are other concepts that are wider, of course, with robotics, that's kind of the core. But, you know, Industry 4.0 overall, you know, as like a, a term for this thing that's supposedly kind of washing in over over our, our employment sector and, and certainly, you know, coming into manufacturing. What did you find about kind of this phenomenon specifically right. were there other things than robotics that turned out to be important and or or is it maybe not just about the technology what what are some of the findings you have on that end so to do this research we went into a lot of um companies and we looked across many industries so we looked at healthcare we looked at mobility looked at retail um, but we looked at manufacturing in particular i think that you know MIT's done a lot of research on this we, in the late 80s, uh, had an uh, effort called Made in America, which at the time, the challenge was U.S. productivity relative to um, threats from Japan. Uh, then we moved into challenges, you know, what's the relationship between manufacturing and innovation and some, some other work. Um, now we had to ask ourselves, well, what, how is manufacturing changing in, these new, in this new paradigm and what does it mean for workers? And what we saw is, of course, Industry 4.0 is a very broad term. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. And it's not, uh, it's not sort of an um, established paradigm. I think it means, I think it does mean, you know, greater connectivity. Uh, it certainly means uh, generating more data. And, you know, data is the new oil in all of these things, f- predictive capabilities. But what we found, interestingly, was not that Industry 4.0 had been adopted across the board in, uh, in firms, but that it was being still a little bit experimented with pilots in, in particular areas of firms, particular types of um, production capabilities, and then piloted success, let's move it to a different facility. But what's interesting is we felt that when we saw manufacturing and how this technology was being used, it was really about trying to identify pain points across different f- facilities. You identify the pain point, how can technology help us? What, what can we do with more um, more data, more sensors that are telling us what's going on. So it's been, I think it's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. Firms are moving that way. But I guess I'd say it's not, uh, there are many different paths to the Industry 4.0 um, vision. Uh, and it's not one single 
uh, model that has been, you know, easily adopted or clearly adopted by firms. What was sort of the biggest surprise for you uh, in, in that research? Because surely you must have expected some of it, but you, you also as a team perhaps had, uh, you know, these hypotheses about what, what you were going to find. What were some of the biggest surprises? I guess I would say that I was surprised and, and maybe others would not have been so surprised by but we have so much advanced technology in manufacturing. There's just a tremendous amount going on uh, across you know, various types of, um, of data-driven um, uh, areas. And what I was surprised by was not having seen, not, not seeing as much adoption as I thought. And where we did see it, the challenges for organizations in doing this. We often, the conversation around manufacturing um, is about technology adoption and then skills and how do we, you know, we need to change skills for this. I don't think we necessarily talk enough about what has to happen at the organizational level. You know, when you're talking about uh, revamping and rethinking your production system around data-driven decision-making, it's an organizational change. It's a cultural change. You, it's not just about these machines over in this cell. And so what we heard from a lot of, uh, a lot of people was, the technology is the, is the least important of the of the transformation. The transformation requires social, cognitive, um, cultural changes around around the technology. And and how did that translate at MIT? I mean, you said it was a multidisciplinary project, so there were people on this project already that were covering that angle, or did you have to bring in people for for that effort? Well, it's interesting. We are about to go back and look more deeply at why the other finding, I will say the other finding is that uh, we've expected to see more robots than we found, particularly <laughs> in small and medium sized firms. Why weren't, why weren't they all adopting a lot of robots? And there's a lot of barriers to adoption uh, and a lot of inflexibility with some of that technology. Um, the cost of, of the, of the adoption, which isn't, is really about the integration, less so about the technology itself. Um, but we're about to go back in and we're thinking about bringing an ethnographer. Uh, right, because um, there is a, a lot going on between the decision to adopt technology and how it is used and how it is um, embraced by workers, by managers, um, you know, by an organization as a whole. And so one of the, you know, I think one of the ways that we think um, the manufacturing has to rethink this technology is that it's very easy, obviously, for a whole host of reasons, a lot of companies are driven by ROI and they have a certain time period before they have to get a return on these investments. It's, you know, it's pretty simple to calculate ROI when you replace a worker with a robot. Um, you're, you know, right to your bottom line. It's less, um, it's less obvious how you calculate the ROI on a collaborative robot or something that's assisting and augmenting a worker in the process. And so that's the kind of thing we're trying to capture. What, what does it mean to bring in augmentation? What does it mean to, you know, transform a system and, and of course, look for ROI, but that might be something that, you, you know, takes a longer period of time for companies to really, um, uh, you know, reap the benefits of. Well, augmentation is a, is a fascinating concept, right? Because it, it goes beyond robotics, as you say, and, you know, cobots have become a term because we realize we need to work with these robots, but more than that, we need to work with all the technologies in the, in the workplace. What were some of the conclusions you had on in terms of 
I know one, one of the things you, you discussed in the report was institutional frameworks also need to change. So it's yeah. not just about individual relationships right. or maybe upskilling of the individuals in the, you know, on the shop floor or in, in, in the manufacturing sector. What are some of the institutional arrangements that, uh, that you found are there are changing in other countries or, or that have to, you know, that have to change here in the U.S.? Well, of course, the one that everyone points to is what we're doing about education and, and training and that um, we need to innovate and invest in skills. And what I think that we found with the manufacturing um, uh, manufacturers that we spoke to was that, in fact, it wasn't that we needed a wholesale new set of workers, that people just didn't have the skills we needed. We need this whole new set of skills. It's actually that they um, need people to develop different skills, not necessarily more difficult skills, but different skills, and that those can be learned. They can be learned on the job. We now have new types of online education that are really, um, I think, you know, really changing the way that firms can actually bring um, education and training to their workers. So that's, you know, that was one dimension. I think we also are in a, a world in which we know that work-based learning is critically important. Uh, for workers. And so finding a way that people have an experience and bring that into the classroom. Um, the German model right now is moving much more toward an integration of a vocational education. So getting that hands-on learning with uh, the sort of theory, if you will, that you get from a four-year degree. Hmm. Um, I think in the U.S., one of our biggest challenges is making sure that people are moving from high school right into uh, more skilled work and training that is provided kind of in partnership perhaps with community colleges and firms. Because what happens is when we lose people at high school, it's really very hard to get them back on a, on a career path. And so to me, the, the real um, opportunity is for us to think about people from high school to a, essentially the post-secondary two-year degree in, in between that space and how we can provide institutional um, support for pathways to the middle, which manufacturing really offers. Well, you might be a good person, uh, a good person to answer this question. It, it boggles the mind a little bit that manufacturing is still by many, largely, and, and maybe speak for young people generally, not seen as the place to, to go. And, you know, I'm not certain that these patterns are, are going to remain the same, but, you know, you have seen these trends over, over a period of time. Given how much you have looked into all of the exciting opportunities inside of the manufacturing industry, isn't it? little bit surprising that there still is this challenge of losing people at, in high school. Like, why isn't manufacturing seen as a much more attractive place to be when there's robotics, there's software technologies, there's all kinds of investment, and it's hardware, it's, it's you, you know, you're actually doing things, you can see the results. There's so many things manufacturing has going for it. Yeah. Why does it take so long, I guess, for this image to turn around when, in fact, there seems to be quite a lot of opportunity in the sector. So I think there are a couple of things. So the first is, historically, if you were to look at what's happened to manufacturing, what happened to communities uh, and individuals in manufacturing in the U.S., you would also question whether your child should go into it. We had a deindustrialization in this country that lasted uh, for decades and that affected people uh, across generations. Uh, so communities that were, were decimated by the loss of manufacturing offshore, the fact that that would have then ripple effects. Um, and so a lot of communities, as we know, that have been, you know, struggling to rebuild over time. And, and I think we, we just didn't have the guardrails up at that time for, um, for helping people, you know, uh, get out of that and kind of, tran tr you know, figure out how to respond to 
that sort of crisis in the country. Um, another factor, I think, is the fact that we have been in in many decades, we've really um, prized the four-year degree. And that has been, obviously, returns to four-year degrees have been uh, and continue to be the strongest uh, for workers. But the four-year degree is not for everyone. 40% of those who start a four-year degree in the U.S. do not finish within six years. That's an enormous amount of waste and an enormous amount of um, time. And so I think that's also where a lot of people said, well, manufacturing isn't going to, you know, that doesn't provide that long-term um, career. And also the fact is that you do need to provide, people have to provide career paths for our, for the young, for young people today or for anybody who's joining a manufacturing establishment. It's not enough to just stay in one, in one place. We need to find these career paths. Well, that was going to be my next question. So we talked a little bit about the organizational side, but if you were advising leaders in manufacturing today uh, to forge this new new path. So clearly sending your employees, you know, in, on a four-year track is really not an option. And, and you're saying even even for young workers, four years may be, may be too long. It's basically about getting into the workplace and getting the experiences. But what's your advice to existing employers who may have these skills gaps and they're obviously trying to catch up with Industry 4.0 technologies to trying to, you know, make the most out of, a, you know, right now with COVID, a difficult situation. But strategically, how do you approach this, this productivity challenge and this worker shortage and these set of organizational issues, not yeah. just technology issues? Uh, it's a really good question. And I think that's right. I think on one hand, we've had um, a lot of firms are having a lot of opportunity uh, right now. You know, COVID is presented, you know, shaking up supply chains and all sorts of things. On the other hand, it's been a very challenging time for a lot of firms. One of the interesting things that we found uh, that perhaps is not surprising to, to a firm, uh, but I think from a policy point of view is perhaps interesting, which is until new technology is brought into a firm, firms aren't really incented to invest in skills or in their workers, right? It's when you make that investment that you can then you know, think about let's upskill and let's get more productivity out of our workers. And um, this is sort of not surprising if you were in Europe, right, which has much stronger um, labor laws and con kind of concerns for workers. If you're paying a lot for your worker, you're going to invest in them because you want higher productivity. Uh, here in the States, there isn't that incentive, I think. And so I think the challenge is really how to make investments in this technology because it really is transformational. It is going to increase productivity. It does provide new models uh, of production that we, you know, that I think we haven't even tapped into what the possibilities are. Um, but how are firms going to be able to do that? What's the what's the kind of capital structure? What's the pull from customers? What's the push from uh, from government from policies? You know, we're we're discussing right now in the U.S. how to rebuild our supply chains. Um, you know, how do we do that and make and make the work the incentives correctly for firms uh, for firms that are going to make those investments? If we bypass the kind of the immediate policy context and look a little bit longer term and, and you thinking about reflecting the, the work that you just did at MIT around the work of the future, but also going back to some of your earlier work on biomanufacturing and, and you know, in, in the PI study that I know about, your earlier study at MIT, which also was a path-breaking study, what do you think are some of the implications of those studies in terms of what's going to truly happen in the next decade to this manufacturing industry. You know, barring some sort of, uh, you know, enormously clear policy path in the U.S. or otherwise, what are the trends telling you? Where are we headed? 
Um, well, I think it's a very exciting decade. And I actually had uh, a senior executive in the automotive industry say that um, he thought the next decade was going to be the most exciting decade in the history of the automotive industry, which is saying a lot. <laughs> uh, and I think that's right. You know, we've just got, um, you know, we're, we're talking autonomous vehicles. We're talking electric vehicles as, an, as one example. Um, so I think the trends, I mean, I think we will get, uh, you know, we're going to get better and better connectivity and we're going to get greater and greater insight. And so, and we're going to drive toward customization uh, in whether it's your um, drugs or whether it's your car. Right. We're going to find ways that we can actually personalize that production system. Is it those two sectors that you would highlight, kind of the, the, the biomanufacturing side and the automotive? Are those the two drivers of, I mean, the American and the global economy or are there other sectors that are going to emerge uh, you know, from, from, from your work again that you think uh, have been somewhat overlooked as either boring or sort of lagging, uh, lagging sectors, but which sort of could come back with a vengeance and, and become an engine, a new engine of the economy? Are there other sectors? Well, I think we're seeing, I mean, obviously, um, I would sort of speak broadly about biopharma, and I would also sp speak about medical device. I think, you know, given what's going on trends globally, that's, that's an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting area. Um, I think, that, you know, what we're going to see is technology that's working transversally across a lot of industries. So I think 3D printing, for example, will, we've got a lot of issues with costs, et cetera, but figuring out that and building, thinking about scale in that area uh, or how we're going to build to scale is going to affect a lot of different, a lot of different areas. Um, you know, there's no doubt that the electronics industry is going to continue. Um, and it's obviously based in Asia, and we've obviously got a lot of challenges with respect to um, semiconductor production right now. And so I think that's going to be on the horizon for a long time. But the other one that we have to talk about is also clean energy. I mean, that is mm. one that I think every, every country is going to be thinking about how do we build our capacity on clean energy um, production systems. And so that's uh, do you see that as a new uh, segment, or do you see that as a continuation, just with a very different spin and a, and a higher emphasis inside of each kind of sector? Um, well, it's you know it's existed for decades, right? We've been uh, making efforts to try and launch it in this country, and other countries have been very aggressive in that area. So, um, but I still think there's a lot of new sort of dimensions to bring into it. I think that we haven't, uh, you know, we're still just figuring out what actually this looks like in terms of nuclear, for example, going forward and, and other areas. So um, I think it's got a lot of room for growth, even though we, we may have kind of dipped our toe in a number of different parts of, of clean energy. I think it's got a long way to, to go for, for growth. Last thing, I just wanted to, to ask you, a lot of the listeners uh, will be interested in how to get involved at a deeper level to understand manufacturing trends, work of the future. I mean, it's one of the hottest topics on the internet to Google about. Uh, where, I mean, an obvious source would be to read your reports that were just out from MIT. That would be self-serving, I know. Yes, uh, so that we have covered. <laughs> I think we can establish that that seems to be a good source. But where else should people go? What are the sources of information on, on this emerging manufacturing and, and, and world of, of work? 
Well, there is a lot out there. And I think that a number of the consultant firms are coming out, you know, always have a lot of predictions on numbers and things like that, whether it's um, McKinsey or um, some of the others. I think the World Economic Forum has really tried to um, be a leader in this space. I think that's a, an interesting um, an interesting dimension. I would say this, that I feel like um, when people say, how can I be engaged in the work of the future? I think that every every organization should be looking at itself and asking, you know, how are we implementing the work of the future agenda in this organization, in this firm? What are we doing, you know, uh, with respect to uh, technology, skills, um, job quality, and what are, what are the implications for workers? Put workers at the center of your questions and see what comes out of that kind of a, a, uh, analysis. Uh, because I think there's a real opportunity for um, thinking about how we are going to use technology to bring benefits to everyone and, uh, and, and, and have a, a sort of a change in our trajectory so that we see a, a pattern going forward that really benefits everyone and doesn't necessarily see technology as something that, you know, complements some and, and substitutes others. And, and, you know, there's a, a big divide. I'd like to see some opportunity to change that. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much, uh, Liz. It's been a pleasure. And I think people will uh, do well uh, consulting the work that has been uh, going on at MIT over the last few years. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. You have just listened to episode 7 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was the work of the future. Our guest was Elizabeth Reynolds, Executive Director, MIT Task Force on the Work of the Future. In this conversation, we talked about why the work of the future is particularly relevant now, and why did MIT take this initiative, and what did the task force learn? Which specific institutional innovations are necessary? What will be the adoption curve for Industry 4.0 technologies? I ask her what the next decade will look like, and finally, we discuss how to stay up to date. My takeaway is that the work of the future has just begun. In fact, we are discovering how advanced automation doesn't necessarily mean that robots are taking over, or at least that as robots and software, or both together, move into the workforce and roll onto the factory floor, there are so many jobs still for humans to do, which is reassuring. But the structural changes in the labor market will be profound, and workers, organizations, and governments alike need to prepare now and be ready. Change is upon us. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode four on a renaissance in manufacturing or episode two on how to train augmented workers. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast.